You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. It's great to see so many faces here today. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to Psalm chapter 16. There's our uh, QR code if you want to access our slide notes for today. You can also access notes from previous sermons as well. I'm going to jump right in and begin reading for us from our text today. Psalm chapter 16, it says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom all is my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offering of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. For those that are visiting with us today, we've been working through various psalms over the past couple of months, and we actually taught through Psalm 16 two weeks ago. Um, And and I told everybody on that Sunday that we were going to come back to it on Easter Sunday. And so what we did week one of looking at this psalm was to kind of see it from the Old Testament perspective, realizing that David wrote Psalm 16 years before Jesus would come on the scene, right? And so there was an Old Testament perspective about this. David had a perspective about the truths that he writes here. Those that would read David's psalm, that would sing David's psalm in the years to come, would have an Old Testament perspective about it. But then in the New Testament, what we're going to see today is that the New Testament authors are able to, because of God's special revelation continuing to come through the personhood of Jesus, they're able to look back into what David wrote and say, hey, Jesus is fulfilling this. Jesus is coming to do what David is longing for. And so we're going to see that today as we unpack this psalm once again. The idea that David had thoughts and perspectives going on in the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament we look back and we see it with um, not a different perspective necessarily, but a more full perspective. Um, To be able to see that not only is David proposing a type of hope for us, that we can see that that hope is now guaranteed, that it's assured to us. I told you two weeks ago that there's two concepts about God that David views very important when he's talking about these truths and these hopes that he conveys to God's people, the idea of God's power and God's goodness. And these are two areas that the enemy continues to attack. He attacked them in the Garden of Eden. He continues to attack them today in our minds and in the minds of our youth as well. Is God good and is God in control? Is God powerful? David alludes to both of these in this psalm when he talks about God being a place of refuge. He's powerful, he's strong, he's a place that we can run to for safety. But he's also a place of goodness. David talks about there being no good apart from God. Uh, Meaning that God is all good, he's only good, um, and that if there's anything good, it must come from God. Anything outside of God is not good, right? So we can't find good apart from God. So 
other gods, other, other ways of life that are offered out there that promise goodness, they don't offer goodness. They don't fulfill goodness. They don't bring goodness. Um, we're deceived into thinking that maybe they do. But David reminds us there is no good apart from God. He is the only source of good. And he is the best place to find refuge. Right? He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge, which I think reminds us and communicates to us that there is a need for refuge for the believer. Uh, that there's, there's evil out there, there's pain out there, there's suffering out there that we need to find relief from. The church and, and God's word and, and God's people should never try to convey or dismiss the presence of evil. It's, it's there. Right? We can't deny that. We can't deny that evil exists. We can't deny that evil is at work around us and that there is a need for refuge. We need not try to deny the presence or workings of evil around us, particularly to our children. It would be a mistake for us to try to shield our children from thinking that, that, that evil isn't out there. Instead, we need to be equipping them to see that, that there is evil and to help them see where they need to run to when they see it. Right? That the God is our refuge, that he is our strength. You'll remember from two weeks ago when we first started looking at this chapter, not only does God, or not only does David talk about God being a place of refuge, he talks about the balance between um, the, the, the saints and those who run after pagan practices, right? He talks about the, the believers and how we should align ourselves with believers. And, and he talks about those who uh, practice these drink offerings of blood. And we talked about how uh, in context today, we're obviously not dealing with that per se, but, but it does allude to just the pagan practices that are around us, these practices that promise fulfillment. Will we engage in those things? Um, we also talked about the concept that he mentions in verses 5 and following, the idea of him pouring a cup for us to drink, um, the, the contents of the cup that he gives to us, the, the lot lines or the property lines that he gives to us. Are we willing to to drink from that cup? Are we willing to live in the course of those property lines that he gives to us? Will we find contentment there? Will we stay committed to a God who gives us different circumstances than other believers in our life? Will we be content with the cup that we drink from? Will we be content with the property lines that are given to us? And so these questions, I think, are, are, are left if we just see this chapter from an Old Testament perspective. How do I know God is a reliable place of refuge for me? How do I know my friends who engage in pagan practices don't have the answers for me? How do I know that the lot lines that God gives to me are good? How do I know the contents of the cup are safe for me to drink? I challenged you a couple weeks ago that your commitment level to God will always be tied to your level of belief in his power and in his goodness. If you start to, to, to lose faith in those two things, if you start to doubt his goodness, if you start to doubt his power, that's when you're going to start to stray. It's when you're going to start to wander from the faith. David reminds us he's both powerful and he is good. And so we can trust him with the cup. We can trust him with the lot lines. But I want to go a step further than just kind of leaving that out there as a hope for us, as we did two weeks ago, to show you validation for why we can believe those things validation for why we can believe that he is the best place for refuge, that he is the best place to find goodness, he is the only place to find goodness, why we don't turn to the, to the lost in this world with their pagan practices to find satisfaction. No, that we, we continue to run to God who gives us 
good lot lines, who gives us good contents in the cup to drink. And the reason we can answer a definitive yes, yes, he is these things, is because the resurrection of Jesus. It's the greatest display of power and goodness ever seen on this earth. The resurrection of our Lord and Savior. It's God working both his power and his goodness to resurrect the Savior. Jesus doesn't just come to be an example for us. He doesn't just come to be a great teacher for us. He doesn't come to just lay a foundation for what it looks like to follow God. No, he comes to do those things perfectly to make himself viable as a sacrifice for our sin. But he doesn't remain dead. He doesn't just shed his blood on our behalf. He comes back three days later. He does not get abandoned to Sheol. He does not see corruption. No, he is alive today. Alive today, which gives us validation that the things that David draws us to and points us to in Psalm 16 are things that we can run to confidently. Confidently. The resurrection of Jesus validates this entire chapter. It's not wishful thinking that I won't be abandoned to the grave. It's not wishful thinking that life and reunion with others will take place. We, we did our family tradition yesterday of taking our kids uh, with Adam and Jen, my sister and brother-in-law and their kids. We went to visit the grave of one of our loved ones, and we do this every year. We pick a different family member to go to. And we go and we talk about that family member and the memories that we have of that family member. So we go back and forth, some of them serious, some of them funny, but we reminisce about who this individual is who is laid to death here. And yesterday we went to my grandmother's grave who we put in the ground just a year ago. And she's now laying next to her husband. And we talked about the fact that, that we long to see them again. right? We long to continue making memories with them in the future. Because while those memories draw up uh, sad feelings about not being with them right now, not getting them to, to be able to see other grandkids and great-grandkids growing up. And we long for the fact that, 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 that it's not over with, that they haven't been abandoned to the grave, they haven't been abandoned to Sheol, that, that the life isn't over for them, right? Their, their souls aren't there, but their bodies are. And I do think it's important that we, we always remind ourselves that a believer who dies who goes to be with Christ, is not in their eternal state yet, right? There's this longing, even for those who are with Jesus right now, to be reunited with their bodies, to see resurrection take place, Jesus being the first fruit of that resurrection, right? We long for that. It's not just wishful thinking. We can say, Lord, you're not going to abandon me to Sheol. You're not going to let me see corruption. But we can say it confidently because Jesus is the example of what that looks like. He is the example for us. He is the first fruit of what we long for. The resurrection of Jesus gives me all the hope that I'll ever need. I can be safe from the greatest evils. Right? The greatest evils that you're going to encounter this week pale in comparison to the evil of death. Right? Death is man's greatest enemy because we have not figured out how to overcome it. Right? We, we can't overcome it. We're all, we're all on a course to death. It's our greatest fear. If we, if we really sit and ponder, we can, really, we can really mess with our minds about what that's going to look like to die one day. It's, our, it's, our, it's man's greatest fear. Man would love to be able to overcome that, to extend life for as long as possible. Jesus has overcome death for us, and so it gives us confidence that he too can overcome any other evil that we're faced with in life. He is a place we run to for refuge. We can drink the cup that he gives to us. Why? Because he drank the cup that was meant for us. Right? He drank the cup of God's wrath. Revelation chapter 14, 
says that that cup is still available for those who don't repent, who don't come to Christ, who aren't saved. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 and 10. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Who's it talking about there? Well, it's talking about the pagan. It's talking about the one who's pouring out drink offerings of blood here on this earth, who's pursuing things, trying to find goodness outside of God's will, right? It's those individuals that will still drink of this cup of wrath one day. They'll be tormented forever. They will be abandoned and separated from God forever. But I can drink of any cup that God gives to me today. Any cup that he gives to me today, I can drink from it because he's already drank that other cup for me. Right? He took God's wrath. He took the greatest, the greatest fears that I would have, dying and being separated from my loved ones, being separated from God forever. He drank that cup for me, which now gives me the confidence to say, God, give me whatever you have to drink. Right? I can trust in your goodness. I can trust in your grace. I can trust in your mercy because you've been demonstrating it for all time. You climactically demonstrated it through the resurrection of Jesus. Psalm 16 gives us great hope, but it doesn't leave us hanging with wishful thinking about the hope that it gives to us. No, in the New Testament, we're going to be able to see today definitive declaration, validation that Jesus' resurrection Jesus' resurrection gives us the reliability that these hopes can be banked on. Our summary sentence for today. The terminal threat of Sheol, and we'll talk about what that means. The terminal threat of Sheol is conquered by the resurrection of Jesus, allowing me to now live faithfully, trusting him with my fears and with my desires, because the fear of death has been replaced with a hope of life forevermore. The terminal threat of Sheol is conquered by the resurrection of Jesus, allowing me to now live faithfully, trusting him with my fears and with my desires, because the fear of death has been replaced with a hope of life forevermore. For our kids, Jesus' resurrection gives us great reason to trust God because he has conquered death and given us life. David draws our attention at the end of this psalm. That's where we'll focus our attention today. In verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. What's the idea there? The idea of Sheol carries kind of an all-encompassing idea of of death and separation from the body, the grave. Um, Oftentimes it's used in Scripture to uh, really point towards the place of the wicked and and they're they're holding... uh, their holding tank, their holding uh, place for all eternity. Um, David is saying, as a follower of God, as a child of God, I'm not going to be abandoned to that state. He's communicating the fact that God will not let his Holy One see corruption. There's a hope that David's communicating here that this truth is for him. This hope of everlasting glory is present but how will it be accomplished? And this is hard to sometimes understand in the Old Testament because while you can go back and read resurrection 
hope into the Old Testament. We're not fully clear how much Old Testament saints understood about the future resurrection. How, how clear were some of those truths? And, and we don't know exactly how clear it was for David, but we're going to see from New Testament writers that David had some idea that this hope of not being abandoned to Sheol, not having him see corruption, really necessitated someone coming to be a forerunner to make that happen. That there's this idea of eternal glory, this idea that I won't be abandoned in the afterlife, that I'll be with God. This idea that, that, that life forevermore is coming. But as we're going to see, David had some awareness that this only happens if somebody comes and, and makes it possible. That in and of itself, we won't be with God forever unless someone fixes the problem that we've created with our sin. Jesus' resurrection is the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. It's the climactic event that the Old Testament was pointing to. All of the Old Testament is pointing to this resurrection. You'll remember in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13 through 27, we won't take the time to look at it, but you'll remember that Jesus, after the resurrection, finds himself walking with two individuals on the road to Emmaus, right? And so they're having a conversation, and these two disciples are distraught because Jesus, their Savior, is dead. And they're not sure what to do about that. And Jesus begins to gently rebuke them through teaching them and showing them that the resurrection has happened and it's a resurrection they should have been longing for because that section closes with it saying that jesus showed them through the old testament how the old testament pointed to his work his life his death and his resurrection first corinthians 15 the the passage that's oftentimes so highlighted for its emphasis on the resurrection both jesus's and our future resurrection. Look what it says. Now I remind you, starting in verse 1, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul's saying, look, what I'm telling you, what I'm communicating to you is directly in line with what's already been given to us in the Old Testament. Prophecies that Jesus would come, he would live, he would die, and he would be raised again. I think probably Paul and maybe even Jesus when he's talking to these two in Emmaus, I don't doubt that either one of them probably looked to Psalm 16 as one of those passages to point to, to say here is validation for the resurrection. Jesus coming to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy of what it looks like for your soul not to be abandoned to Sheol, for your Holy One not to see corruption. The New Testament writers see the resurrection of Jesus specifically as the fulfillment and the validation of what Psalm 16 is telling us to hope for. All right, so again, Psalm 16, there's this, there's this threat of Sheol that's out there, this threat of death this threat of abandonment, this threat of life ending, the fears that all man and woman experience. What happens when I die? David says we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry about Sheol. We don't have to worry about life after here. We don't have to worry about the grave. We don't have to worry about our souls and bodies being separated. We don't have to worry about what comes. He said for the believer, it's assured that we will not be abandoned to that state. I want us to see that from the New Testament. If you're taking notes, number one, 
see Jesus' resurrection as the validation for the hopes of Psalm 16. We want to see Jesus' resurrection validating what I'm telling you to hope about in Psalm chapter 16. And we'll start by looking at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. This is uh, at the same time that Pentecost is taking place, where the Holy Spirit has come upon the disciples and they're speaking in different languages and people are hearing the gospel in the language that they best understand. And so you've got this taking place, this going on. And it says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Notice that Jesus' death is part of God's plan, and yet there's also human responsibility, human accountability for those who carried out that plan, right? So Jesus dies, part of God's plan. Men are held responsible for crucifying and killing him. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I think one of the reasons that it was not possible for him to be held by it is because the Old Testament promised that he couldn't be, right? Promises that God obligated himself to. God promises that his Holy One will not be abandoned to Sheol, will not see corruption. Peter says it wasn't possible for him to be held by the pangs of death. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Notice that he's quoting directly from our psalm. Peter says, look, this is what David said about Jesus. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. What's he saying there? He's saying David is not the fulfillment of that prophecy. David can't lay hold to that hope in and of himself. He says, look, David died. David's still in the grave. We have no proof that, that he's okay, right? He's, 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 not, he's not the fulfillment of this. No, he says, to verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's saying, hey, God made a promise to David that he would have a descendant who would come from him, who would be the ruler for all time. He would be the king forever. He would never step away from his throne. He would be the all-time king. And he says David knew that when he wrote this psalm. 
Does David have a hope for himself that he won't be abandoned to Sheol, that he won't see corruption? Absolutely. But his confidence about that, his confidence about that is tied not to his life, but to the life and work of Christ, to the Messiah, to the one who would come. Did he know the name of Jesus? No, probably not. Did he know that God had promised to send somebody, starting first through the line of Abraham and now through the line of David? Did he believe that? Absolutely. Peter says David knew this was going to happen. David knew that there was going to be one who would come, who would show us. He would show us God's power. He would show us God's goodness. He would show that he would not be abandoned to Sheol, that he would not see corruption, so that we can have confidence that David, too, is not abandoned to Sheol, that David is not going to see corruption, that he will experience resurrection one day just as Jesus has. David had this hope in the Old Testament, but he isn't viewed as the one who primarily experiences it or makes it possible for others to experience. No, that points us to Christ. Christ has to be in David's mind in some way. He's looking to the one who will be the fulfillment of the covenant made to him. Again, I shared this earlier. Don't miss the fact that there is an incompleteness to what David and every other saint who has gone on before is experiencing right now. Right? They are not in their eternal state. Right? They are not with us, enjoying our company and fellowship. Are they with Jesus? Absolutely. Our loved ones have gone on before us. But we know they are coming with Jesus one day to be radically changed as those will be who are still on the earth at that time. To be resurrected, to be given glorified bodies. That's our eternal state. That's life forevermore. And don't miss the fact that the saints that are in heaven today, they are looking forward to Jesus' return even more so than we are. I mean, they're getting a taste of it right now. And it's like, Lord Jesus, let's go. We're saying, Lord Jesus, come. And they're saying, Lord Jesus, let's go. Let's get back with our bodies and let's enjoy you the way that we were meant to enjoy you. Right? David would long to see for Jesus to come at this point. This hope is true for David, but only because it is true for Christ, which makes it true for us too. We can confidently sit here today and say, if we are believers, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to worry about being abandoned to Sheol. We don't have to worry about seeing corruption and being separated from God in our family. No, we will be reunited with all because of Christ and his resurrection. Jesus says in John 14, 9, or John 14, 19, because I live, you shall live also. Charles Spurgeon once said, die we must, but rise we shall. We will die unless Jesus comes, right? We, we are not exempt from death. Christians don't get saved and then get to, who escape death. Unless Jesus comes, we will face death, but we can face it confidently. We don't have to fear it. Death we will experience, but resurrection we too will experience if we're a believer. Peter preached this psalm, th- or preached this psalm using it in his message. 3,000 people got saved that day. They put the pieces together. They said, oh, Psalm 16, Jesus is the fulfillment of that? Well, now we run to Jesus. He is our refuge. He is our strength, right? Jesus is the one we now turn to, and they come running to Jesus and experience salvation. But number two, Paul preached in Acts 13 the gospel message and used Psalm Psalm 16 as well. Acts chapter 13. Verse 17, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. 
And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Verse 24, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us, fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And, they, and though they found in him no guilt of worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, which one? Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The acts of Jesus set us free from all that we were in bondage to and unable to free ourselves from. He sets us free from sin. He sets us free from death. He sets us free to now live with the purposes that God always intended for us. Peter and Paul connecting this for us today, helping us to see in the New Testament, hey, everything that you read in Psalm 16 two weeks ago, absolutely for you, absolutely for you. God is your refuge. You ought to align yourself with believers, distance yourself from unbelievers. He does have a cup for you that is only good for you. He does have plot lines and property lines that are absolutely perfect for you. You won't be abandoned to Sheol. You won't see corruption. But how do we have confidence about that? The New Testament writers are telling us because Jesus is alive. He's alive today. He's back from the dead. He did not get abandoned to Sheol. He did not see corruption. He has paved the way now for us to experience the same thing. See Jesus' resurrection as the validation for all that we're hoping for in Psalm 16. Number two, don't abandon the resurrected Jesus because he will not abandon you. Don't abandon the resurrected Jesus. He's not going to abandon you. Jesus' resurrection motivates me to seek refuge in him. The resurrection of Jesus motivates me to seek refuge in him. It's his power on display, right? 
Why would I run to Jesus for, to be my refuge? Because I know he's powerful enough to be my refuge. I know God the Father is powerful enough to be my refuge because he brought his son back to life. Not back to life like Lazarus. That was a great feat, right? That was a, that was a great miracle. But nobody starts following Lazarus, right? Nobody gives their life to Lazarus, right? His resurrection was temporary at the time. He was brought back to life and he died again. All the people that Jesus raised to life, they died again. There was a difference in Jesus' resurrection. It was permanent. It's the type of resurrection that we long for. It motivates me to seek refuge in him. He's overcome man's greatest threat and fear of death. All other threats and fears are conquered by him too. We can now strongly believe that death is not my end. I don't have to fear being abandoned to it. All other perceived sources of refuge will fail me. I can't leave him for anything else that can help me like he can. Right? Read Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God. Be my refuge. Read that knowing that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Read it knowing there's nothing else that can be a refuge like him. There's nothing else that possesses the power to protect you like him. Jesus' resurrection motivates me to seek refuge in him. Number two. Jesus' resurrection motivates me to seek pleasures from him as well. He's my refuge. He keeps me safe. He works good for me. It's not always the good I would choose, though, right? right? Your plot lines are perfect for you. Your contents and your cup are perfect for you. But it's not always what you would choose, right? He drank the cup of wrath, but oftentimes in our cup, there's some suffering there as well right? There's challenges, there's difficulties, opportunities for our faith to be strengthened and proved. No, our plot lines are perfect. They're good. They aren't what we would choose necessarily. But I challenged you two weeks ago. If we believe that God is good and he's the only source for good, it means that if we don't have something, it's not good for us. It means if we go outside of God trying to find something for ourselves, it's not good for us. He draws the property lines. He lays the plot lines. He fills the cup. And he's the perfect one to do it. And his resurrection motivates me to seek pleasures from him. My pursuit of joy and happiness and satisfaction. It comes from him. And, and the comfort here is that it's not tied to this life alone. Right? 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen says, If we as believers have only this life to hope in, we should be pitied for it. The reason I can be content with my plot lines, the reason I can be content with my cup and believe in his goodness, even when I see other people having things that I want or having the circumstances that I desire, is I can remind myself that my life isn't just this life, right? There's a life to come, a life forevermore, right? My life doesn't just happen now until I die. No, the one I'm really longing for is the one that comes after death, after resurrection, Right, so I can seek God for these pleasures, for the joy, the happiness, and the satisfaction. I've been saved to something far greater than anything found here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I mean, the greatest things for us are yet to come. The greatest plot lines and the greatest contents of the cup are yet to come. We're saved to this great inheritance. 
all other perceived sources of goodness and all other alternatives of goodness, they're not good for us. My challenge to you today is don't abandon the resurrected Jesus. Don't abandon him. There's going to be temptation to do that at times. I put in my notes. We, we've, talked, we've talked a lot recently about that, that concept of deconstruction and how people are abandoning the faith, leaving the faith, reinterpreting their faith, right? Uh, people who have grown up in church, people who have served as pastors, teachers and disciplers and missionaries who are leaving the faith. I put in my notes, people who deconstruct and leave the faith do so for what they hope to be a better experience. We've talked about this every Easter for the past five, six years probably. People leave the faith, I fully believe this, for one of three reasons. They're dissatisfied with God, they're dissatisfied with the church, or they're dissatisfied with the Christian life in general. It's an emotional decision. I'm not getting what I expected to get, either from God, the church, or from the life in general. I've, I, I, they may be out there, but I've yet to meet the individual who says, I grew up in church, I followed Jesus, and then I read this theory about what happened to Jesus' body, and, and I'm convinced that he's still dead. And so now I'm going to do things differently because I believe Jesus is dead. I've, I've never met somebody who goes from believing in the resurrection to believing that Jesus' body is still in the grave, that he has been abandoned to Sheol, and that he has seen corruption. I've never met somebody who believed that. I've met plenty of people who say, God did this and that made me angry. That's not what, that's not what a good God would do. Or I've met people who have said, the church did this to me and my family. And therefore we are hurt and we are leaving. Or these things in life, I just want them. And God says I can't have them, so I'm going to leave God because I want them. I want these things. I want this way of life. That's why people leave the faith, Right? It's like people lose their minds, right? We didn't, come to, we didn't come to salvation because we believed that God would always do everything that we want him to do for us. Or that the church was going to be perfect and never hurt us. Or that the Christian life was going to give us every sinful desire and every sinful uh, inclination that we have. No, we came to, came to salvation in Christ, hopefully, because we believed Jesus was back from the dead. It's why 3,000 got saved on the day of Pentecost, because they believed that Jesus was back from the dead. And until you convince me that he's not, I'm going to keep following him. Even though God's going to sometimes give me plot lines and contents of a cup that I didn't choose. Even though there's going to be times where I suffer. Even though there's going to be times where other believers are succeeding. And maybe even unbelievers are succeeding and I'm not. I'm going to keep following him because I believe he's back from the dead. People leave the faith because they want a God who will love them better. A community who will treat them better. A life that will fulfill them better. But Psalm 16 says there is nowhere better to go. The resurrection guarantees it. Do you want a place of safety? Then run to the resurrected Jesus who has overcome death. Do you want a place of goodness? Then run to the resurrected Jesus who works good, not just for this life, but for the one to come too. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul's saying the same thing I'm saying to you. The resurrection is true. The resurrection has happened. And your resurrection is to come. Don't leave him. Don't abandon him. You stay immovable steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. His power is still true today. His goodness is still true today. We keep running to him to be our refuge. And it's not a wishful thinking. The resurrection validates his power and his goodness. Our application, when you are tempted to doubt the power of God or the goodness of God, remember the resurrection is the greatest proof of both giving you reason to remain close to him and to trust him. You stay close to him and you trust him. You trust him with your lot lines. You trust him with your cup and the contents of it. He's already displayed his greatest power and his greatest goodness. And he's going to keep doing it. He's going to keep doing it. You stay steadfast, immovable. You don't leave him. You don't leave him. All the hopes of Psalm 16 validated in the hopes of Jesus' resurrection and ours to come. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you that we have the hope of our own resurrection because we have the, the validation of your sons. Lord, there's so much evidence to point to the resurrection. Even if we didn't have it contained in your word, the secular evidence points to the fact that that something miraculous happened to the the body of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to see the truth of the resurrection when we are tempted to think that there is a better God out there who can love us better, when we think that there's a better community of people out there who can treat us better, and when we think that there's a better way of life out there that will fulfill us better. God, help us to not lose sight of the resurrection of Jesus. Because it reminds us that all that you say in Psalm 16 is validated for us. That you are the best place of refuge. That you are the only source of goodness. That your plot lines for us are perfect. Your contents in the cup are perfect for us. They are good. And we know it because Jesus is alive today. And it gives us hope to live this life faithfully to you. Because we know this isn't it. This isn't all that we experienced. No, our greatest experiences are still to come. God, we thank you for sending Jesus to prove to us what it looks like to not be abandoned to Sheol, to not experience corruption. God, we long for that ourselves. Strengthen our faith to believe it. For those who don't know you, God, I pray that you'd bring them to a point of salvation today. Help them to hear this message as many heard it over 2,000 years ago when they were cut to the heart. And they said, Peter, what what do we need to do? God, help them to see they need to be saved. They need to put their faith and trust in Jesus. They need to run to Jesus. He is their source of refuge. We thank you. Thank you for providing Jesus to be that source of refuge for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to challenge you now in the closing part of our service today as we partake of the Lord's Supper. If you you don't have the elements, I've asked um, Adam McLeod and maybe if Marcus can... If you, if you don't have um, the juice and the bread, just raise your hand and we can bring that to you so that you don't have to 
to get up and move around. Um, just as a precursor, you know, the Lord's Supper is for those who are believers, who have expressed faith in Christ. And whether you're a member of our church or not, you're invited to partake. And so we're thankful to have you here today. Thank you for um, being a part of the, the bigger community of Christ, even if you're not a member here of our church. Normally, we partake of the Lord's Supper on our application Sundays. Today's a little bit different because it's a normal Sunday, but we do want to partake. And for the sake of time, we're going to do it a little bit differently in the fact that I'm going to lead you through partaking of it. So instead of having our normal time of reflection and um, Psalms reading, um, we're going to go ahead and partake together as I point us in the direction of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What a fitting time to partake of the Lord's Supper as the disciples were focused on This with Jesus prior to his death and resurrection, and Jesus was very mindful of what was to come. As we've already seen today in our text, that um, his death and resurrection were part of God's plan. Were humans held responsible for it? Absolutely. Um, But it was also part of God's plan, and so it certainly didn't catch God God in surprise, and and certainly didn't catch Jesus by surprise either, either. And so he used the time leading up to his death and resurrection to point his disciples to a, a, a type of um, ordinance that, that would be done until he comes back one day. And, and it's meant to be a time for us to remember what it is we're even celebrating today. Um, it's a resurrection that we celebrate today, but a resurrection necessary because of our sin that he had to die for. Um, and so 1 Corinthians 11, Paul points us to the truths of the Lord's Supper. And, you know, we share each time that we do this here at, at our church to, to help make sure that it's clear, particularly those who visit, um, that this doesn't save you. This isn't, this isn't the response to what we've heard today. We don't partake of this, eating and drinking, and think that magically now we're a follower of Christ, nor do we do this to keep our salvation. No, this is an expression of what's already happened, and, it, and it's really a way to publicly celebrate it and encourage one another that, that we are still saying yes to Jesus. We said yes to him in the past, and we're still saying yes to him today, that we're banking everything in our life on his body, his blood, his resurrection, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection that points to our own as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let me encourage you to take your your peace that represents bread. And we're going to pray a a prayer of thanksgiving and then we're going to partake together. Lord, we're doing this today as believers. We're doing this today as believers who trust in in the perfection of your son, Jesus Christ. His righteousness on our behalf. His perfect life, a life that we could not live. God, thank you for sending son, your son, Jesus, to be righteousness for us to live perfectly, to fulfill the law, to remove the obligations of the law that we could never keep. And we thank you for the, for the body that was broken, the life that was lived. We praise you and thank you for that aspect of our salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 25 says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The wine represents, or the the juice represents the the blood of Christ that was shed. 
By drinking of it, we are once again publicly proclaiming that we believe ourselves to be sinners, that we're in need of a sacrificial death, that animal sacrifices could never atone for the things that we've done. Only Jesus and his perfect blood could. And so we've, we've clung to that, and, and we're celebrating that publicly once again by, by drinking of this juice. And, and we're, we're doing this until Jesus comes back, uh, and we believe that he is. And so we do it with anticipation for the resurrection. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the juice that we hold today, uh, not because it's special in and of itself, but because of what it represents. Lord, we thank you for the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, that was shed on the cross, his death for us. And Lord, even though we still face a death, we know that it's a different type of death now. It's a death with hope. It's a death with hope for resurrection. Thank you for shedding blood. Thank you for shedding your your son's blood on our behalf. Thank you for, for Jesus who drank the cup of wrath so that we could drink a different type of cup today. We praise you and thank you for the salvation that's been extended to us. We long for the day that you return. We long for the day that your resurrection becomes our resurrection and that we are ushered into pleasures forevermore, life forevermore. We look forward to that day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today uh, on this special day. Um, Such a great reason for us to celebrate. I was thinking about um, the words that were spoken in the garden by Satan, right? Those tempting words of, did God actually say, were followed by the words of judgment on Satan, that he will crush your head. Uh, Thankful that the words spoken on a hillside to lowly shepherds I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. We're followed by the very words of God the Father audibly on the shores of the Jordan River as Jesus was baptized when he said, This is my Son in whom I am pleased. So grateful that outside of Jerusalem in a small town called Bethany, as Martha approached Jesus and said, Lord, if you'd had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. We're followed by the life-giving words of Jesus, Lazarus, come out. Thankful that on the cross, three words were spoken, that he who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf. Payment was made when he said, it is finished. We're followed with the greatest news that this world has ever heard, spoken by an angel to women, when he said, he is not here, he is risen. Thankful that as believers today, We are running our race, looking to Christ, the creator, the author, the the very uh, meaning of our salvation, the achiever of our salvation, but that one day, in the twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed together. Thankful that one day, Christ will come victorious and will defeat sin, Satan, and death once and for all. And that will be followed by all who have trusted on him being welcomed into eternity forever with him. So today we celebrate that at the cross, Jesus escorted death to the grave and left it there forever. That's what we celebrate. Death is done. There is no more sting. That the prophet Isaiah said, death is swallowed up in victory. That is what we celebrate. That's what we celebrate every Sunday, but especially today. As believers, we have such great reason to celebrate together, such a great privilege for us to worship this truth together today, to be reminded of it, 
to leave here today as ambassadors of reconciliation, taking this great news to everybody that God has sovereignly put in our path throughout this week, that this news can't be contained, that it will go forth, and we have the privilege of being the ones to carry it forward. Um, so I hope that you've been encouraged through our time today and um, just uh, challenged as well um, through our time. I wanted to share with you an addiction. This is from uh, Jude, the very end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for what today represents, that we have a living hope, a Savior, who even today intercedes for us to God the Father. Speaking on our behalf, we are completely unworthy. Lord, you are our righteousness. You are our worthiness. And we thank you for achieving that through the cross, finding victory in the resurrection. Father, I pray that you would take our time this morning, continue to let it sit upon our hearts and, and, um, and dig deeply into just the, the thoughts, the desires that we have this week. May it reveal areas where we haven't chosen to fully trust you, that we haven't chosen to step out in boldness. Father, bring that conviction where we need it, the encouragement where we need it as well. We thank you so much for the resurrection, for all that it is for us. Lord, we love you, we trust you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.